Johnny had been very naughty and uh, sent to his bedroom, emerged a couple of minutes later and told his mother that uh, he'd thought things over and he'd even said a little prayer while he was there. His mother was very happy to hear this and she said to Johnny, it's good you know that you ask God to help you not to be naughty, son. He will try and help you, you know that, don't you? To which Johnny replied, I didn't ask him to help me with that. I asked him to help you put up with me. <laughs> and uh, there was another story about a little girl dressed in her Sunday best, running as fast as she could, trying not to be late for Sunday school. And as she ran, she prayed, Dear Lord, please don't let me be late. Please don't let me be late. Please don't let me be late. And as she was running and praying, she tripped and fell and uh, fell over the curb. Her clothes were dirty. She tore her dress. She was a bit of a mess. She got up, brushed herself off, and started running again. And this time she prayed, Dear Lord, dear Lord, please don't let me be late. Please don't let me be late. Please don't let me be late. Don't shove me, though. Don't let me be late. The little girl perhaps understood something about our topic for tonight. She knew that God is in control. God is sovereign. But I wonder what you understand by that when I say that. That God is the puppet master, pulling all the strings, blessing some, cursing others. Is that the way we're to understand this doctrine about the sovereignty of God? The word sovereign is a very interesting word. As you know yourselves, it can be used as a noun and a verb. As a verb, it means to rule. As a noun, it talks about a monarch uh, or some such similar, like an absolute ruler or an emperor, maybe. And so when we say that God is sovereign, we're really saying that God is king. He is the absolute ruler. He's in charge of everything, all the time. I love the way the Westminster Confession puts it. He ordains whatsoever comes to pass. In other words, God's sovereignty means that he is absolutely free to do whatever and whatsoever he pleases and to demonstrate his absolute control over the actions of his creatures so long as it doesn't go against his nature or his character. So God is never going to make one of you lie. God is never going to lead one of you to commit adultery. Those things are clearly forbidden, as the German would say, yeah, forbidden, yeah, in Scripture. But God is in control. We believe that. The problem with this doctrine, as we are doing this series about getting to know God better, is that we struggle with it because of ourselves. We have studied now for about nine weeks, I think it is, different aspects of God's character. We've understood some key doctrines like omnipotence, omniscience. We've looked at God's holiness. And when it comes to God's sovereignty, like all of those ones too, um, the Bible is full of references to the idea that God is absolutely in control. 
you can go to the book of Proverbs. And we read there, many are the plans in a man's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. You go to Lamentations. We were in Lamentations a few weeks ago with Jeremiah. Who can speak and have it happen if the Lord has not decreed it? You can go on into the New Testament, the book of James. You ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. You can go back into Job. I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. And the psalmist understands it. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. So the Bible clearly understands that God is sovereign. He's the boss. He's the sovereign one. And the problem, I think, that, it, that we've got today is our rather selfish mindset finds it difficult to get our heads around this doctrine. I think this is one of the doctrines we really struggle with. But I have to say, unless we unwrap this doctrine and understand it more, then we will never fully understand the God that we worship. Because if God is not sovereign, as you frequently hear me say about other things, we are stuffed. If he is not in control, we've got a major problem. So we need to admit that this doctrine, this idea that God is sovereign, that he's the boss, is hugely important. And the first thing I want you to understand is this. If we can get our heads around this doctrine, we'll see first and foremost that it's a very humbling doctrine. Because I think one of the key things about this doctrine is this. Sovereignty reminds us that God is God. Not you, not me. I think that's one of the big reasons we struggle with it. Because we like to be in control. We like to determine things ourselves. We love that. So it's very humbling to be reminded, hang on, God's the boss. He's in control. He's in charge. But it's also a very exalting doctrine. Because there's no doubt that this doctrine gives us a really big view of God and who he is. I said it before and I'll say it again. I think many of us struggle because our view of God is way too small. We kind of box God in. We've reduced him into a manageable kind of thesis or philosophy for our 21st century. And we miss so much about what he's actually like. So it's a very humbling doctrine. It puts us in our place. It reminds us, hang on now, you're not God. It's an exalting doctrine. It magnifies our understanding of who God is. But there's no doubt as well, it's also a mysterious doctrine. Because it brings us face to face with the problem of evil and free will. If God is sovereign, why is there evil in the world? That's a fundamental question that many, many people ask. Many people who are seeking out Christianity ask that question. If God is God, how can there be evil? How can there be wickedness? How can there be suffering in the world? If human beings have free will, because that's the answer we give, well, how 
can God be sovereign? How can he be in control? Now, those questions have been debated for centuries. I think I will probably do a Bible study or, or do a series of sermons on them in the future, but I just want to say this. For our purposes this evening in this series, I think it suffice to say that God is sovereign, and you and I need to understand that we are fully responsible for the choices we make and the actions we take. God is in control, but it does not absolve us of taking responsibility. One does not negate the other. You can't turn around and say, well, God made me do it. So it's a humbling doctrine. It's an exalting doctrine. It's a mysterious doctrine. And fourthly, you know what? I, I think it's also a clarifying doctrine. Because it teaches us, and this is very important in this free-thinking 21st century, there is no such thing as luck, or chance, or fate, or coincidence. You either have God, or you have chance. You know what really winds me up? Christians who say things like, oh, touch wood, everything will be all right. Where do we get off on that? We need to understand you can have God or those things. The two do not sit together. It doesn't happen. You can't do it. You can't have both. Reminds me of a stuntman uh, who applied for health insurance. And uh, the broker asked him if he'd had any accidents during the previous year. And the stuntman replied, no, no, no accidents at all. I was bitten by a snake and a horse kicked me in the ribs. They'd me up for a while. And the agent said, well, weren't those accidents? No, replied the stuntman. They did it on purpose. <laughs> but that's the point, isn't it? He recognized there's no such thing as an accident. It's interesting. The police now don't use the word accident as much as they used to. You're involved in a road traffic collision or there is an incident. You listen to the news and traffic reports. Those are the things you will hear. We don't like the word accident because it implies nobody's to blame. And where there's blame, come on, stick with me. It's humbling, it's exalting, it's mysterious, it's clarifying about this point. Do you believe things just happen by accident? I think it's an empowering doctrine as well. I, for my part, as a father, as a husband, as a pastor, this is hugely empowering for me to know that since God is in charge, no one else and no thing else can intimidate me. So there. <laughs> but that's it, isn't it? Why at times are we as Christians so pathetic? We face difficulties and issues in our lives. We've all been there. Sometimes we need to say, God is with me. God is sovereign, and I'm going to trust him in this. We hold on to God, no matter what. I think that gives us tremendous zeal and the potential to live life with boldness and confidence, without fearing anyone or anything. If God is sovereign, we trust him. We trust him till he calls us home. 
earlier Sean read for us. What is in many ways a press release in Daniel 4 where we find one of the few chapters in scripture written by somebody considered to be a bit of an outsider really. He wasn't a, a Christian obviously, he wasn't a Jew, he was a Babylonian. Nebuchadnezzar, well we've come across him many times over the years. King Nebuchadnezzar was the guy who led the Babylonian army to Jerusalem, conquered it. Uh, to give you the historical context in your Bibles, it takes place during the time of Jeremiah the prophet. And you'll know, poor Jeremiah, Jerusalem's been destroyed, hordes and hordes of people have been carted off into exile by Nebuchadnezzar. He's taken them back to Babylon. And we have Jeremiah sitting down, tears in his eyes, and he writes the book of Lamentations pouring out his heart to God over what's happened. That's the historical context. The interesting thing is, meanwhile, over in Babylon, amongst the hordes and hordes of people taken off into exile, there's a young guy. And his name is Daniel. So you've got Jeremiah looking at things from one perspective, with everybody having been taken away, and oh my gosh, what a mess we're in. And you've got Daniel over there in Babylon looking back and saying, well, okay, this is where we are. I wonder what the blinking eggs happening back in Jerusalem. It must be a sorry state of affairs over there. But here we are. We've got to get on with life. And so by reading through the book of Jeremiah and the book of Daniel at the same time, you get a really good perspective. If you want to do that, that's some homework for you. Daniel chapter 4, King Nebuchadnezzar decides to clear up some vicious rumors that have been circulating in his kingdom about some events surrounding a very tough time in his life. And so he writes, as I said, what to all intents and purposes is a bit of a press release. You notice the language, if you've got your Bibles open, I encourage you to open them to Daniel 4, you'll see that the language is very much in the first person. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace content, prosperous. I had a dream, made me afraid. I was lying in bed. The things I saw pass through my mind terrified me. I commanded that the wise men of Babylon come. So he's writing in the first person. He wants to just lay it out there. Basically, what he wants to do is explain why he, the mightiest man in the world, he was the man. He was the king of Babylon. He was the boss. He was in charge. And he wants to explain why he, as the kingpin, is now worshipping the God of a small, conquered nation. So come with me to verses 2 and 3, if you've got your Bibles open. It's my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders... His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. He then describes how his life's going on. In verse 4, he says that he's contented, he's prosperous. He's basically got what every man would want, isn't he? He's got his palace, you know, a pad of his own. He's got peace, he's got prosperity, he's got power. Everything is going great. You look at Nebuchadnezzar in a snapshot of history at this point, you say, this is the dude. This man's got it. He's got wealth, he's got power, 
He has got everything. He's at the top of his game. And then Nebuchadnezzar has a blinking dream. He's already had one back in chapter 2. This guy ate a lot of cheese, I think. Probably a lot of brie, I'm not sure, but soft cheese always does it to me. Uh, truth is, it's less of, a nightmare, uh, less of a dream, it's more of a nightmare. Verse 5 says he's, he's, he's terrified. The language there in the Hebrew is very strong. He is petrified. Can't figure it out, can't sleep. You ever had a dream like that? Just can't go back to sleep. And, and you're worried about going to sleep the next night. You know, kids often find that. They're scared to go to sleep because they're worried they're going to dream the dream again. Adults get it too. He calls his wise guys in. They can't figure out the meaning of the dream. And he remembers there's a dream buster called Daniel. And he gets Daniel in and he describes the dream to Daniel. He's dreamt to remember, see it there in your text, of a vast tree that stretched to the sky visible to the ends of the earth. The birds can rest in its branches. Animals find shade on the ground under it. Now remember, this is an interesting dream given that Babylon is a barren desert-like landscape. It's modern-day Iraq. So you imagine that scene. A tree like this, in that context, is out of place. So if you see a tree like that in a place like that, it must be a magnificent sight. It's the grandest tree this guy has ever seen. Nebuchadnezzar's probably thinking, that's exciting. The dream turns to a nightmare, though, as he sees a messenger from heaven come down and give orders to have the tree chopped down. Verse 14 the stump is to remain, but the fatal words are then delivered. Let him, the, 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 the stump is there, uh, let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass for him. Nebuchadnezzar's in a bit of a cold sweat. He hears this pronouncement. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the most high is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. See, the king, like us, needed to learn a lesson about God's sovereignty is a reminder. This guy is being humbled now. He's being shown, you are not the king king. You are not God. You are not in control. And so as we come to this text, we must come to it humbly ourselves. We must come understanding that this is a very real lesson for us. To be reminded, to be humbled, that we are not in control. Theresa May is not in control of the Conservative Party, and she ain't in control of Brexit. And whatever your party political colours are, no political leader is ultimately in charge. There is a God in heaven, we are told, who sits on the throne. And we are to behold him as we've been singing. He 
is in control. Not President Trump, not Putin, not the Premier in China or the Emperor in Japan. No, 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 no. God sits on the throne. On this date in 2018, at whatever time it is now, don't look at your watches, God bless you, God rules. Now we just need to understand that. Because that's going to make things a lot easier for you and me tomorrow. And during this week. And with all the faff that some of us have got to deal with. And all the stuff that's going on in our lives. And stuff that we're genuinely worried about. I get why we worry about it. But hold on. God is on the throne. He is in control. Daniel, well, he must have had quite a good relationship with the king. He's greatly perplexed. Did you pick up on that when uh, Sean was reading it for us? When he hears this dream, he's scared. Because he gets what the dream's about. Daniel tells the king in no uncertain terms that he, the king, is the tree. And he's going to be driven away from his people to live with wild animals. He's going to even eat grass like a cow. He's told in verse 24 that all of this will last seven years until he acknowledges that the Most High is sovereign. I am glad that God is not making Mark Owen eat grass like a cow. Every time Mark Owen forgets, God is on the throne, not Mark Owen. There's a very powerful object lesson going on here for us. Daniel pleads with the king. Please, you've got to renounce your sins. You've got to change your ways. You've got to, you've got to do what's right, pal. Sir, sorry. You can imagine him. And I think it must have gone pretty well because a whole year passes. Did you pick up on that? Everything seems to go well for a year. It's like Nebuchadnezzar has heeded the message. He's been going to chapel every Sunday. He's been making sure his tithe is being submitted. He's teaching class in Sunday school. He's even volunteering on a Wednesday morning for coffee and cake. He's doing everything right. By June, things are going a little bit south. By September, he turns up once a month. And a year later, it all changes. One day, he's walking on the roof of his royal palace, surveying his beautiful city, pride floods his heart, spills over out of his gob. Verse 30. Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence? By my mighty power and for the glory. I think before he finished the last bit of this, he was already moved. You can hear it. I think God just got him straight away. He started mooing like a cow when he hears a voice from heaven, verse 32. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anybody he wishes. Now, cow and gate, go in the corner and sort yourself out. One moment, Nebuchadnezzar is a bright, handsome, powerful man with a sharp mind and then because of his arrogance, he's reduced to an animal. 
The text goes on to describe different things about the dew and about his claws. The idea there is that we're to understand it repulsed people. It's horrible. Reminds me of a guy who desperately wanted to work at a zoo and said an advert to be a vet's assistant. And he went to the zoo office and he was told that, sorry, the position had already been filled. And he was really disappointed and starting to leave. And the secretary said, come here, shh, shh, come here, come here. Called him over and got him to sit down. She got up, locked the door, and went over to him and said, look, there's another opening if you're interested. The gorilla recently died. And we've got no more money to buy a new one. So if you want to, you can wear a gorilla costume. And, and you could be the gorilla in the zoo. Do you fancy that? Money in it? Money? Of course he did it. Monkey suit was hot and made him itch in places he couldn't reach. But he enjoyed his new job. He performed for the kids, beating his chest, eating bananas. Days turned into weeks. He became the star of the zoo. One day, though, he was swinging on a rope in his cage, and he went higher and higher as the kids cheered him on. And at the top of his swing, he took one hand off the rope to beat his chest, and he landed with a thud in the neighboring cage of a Siberian tiger. <laughs> All the kids rushed over to the next cage. Mommy, 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 monkey with tiger! Tiger woke up, stretched, went over to the gorilla and sniffed him. The gorilla, the man in the suit, didn't move. He began to whisper, good kitty, good kitty, don't hurt me. Trying to look around for a way out of the cage. The tiger pounced on him and put his front paws on the gorilla's shoulders, pinning him to the ground. The man began to scream out of the, the, out of the uh, ape's costume, Help! Help! I'm only a man in a monkey suit! I'm about to be eaten! The Siberian tiger came closer to the monkey and whispered, Shut up, are you trying to get us both fired? <laughs> I think there's a bit of the gorilla in all of us. God made Nebuchadnezzar become outwardly what he already was in his heart. He was filled with pride, acting like an animal. Now, you and I might not look like an animal, but I'll put money on it if I was a betting man. There are times when you've looked in front of the mirror or sat quietly in your bedroom and nobody else is around and you've thought just how ugly you are on the inside. You've been very aware of how sinful and dirty you are, of how pride has gotten in the way, affecting your relationship with God, your marriage, your friends, your kids, your service in the church. I say to you tonight, friend, do you want to become beautiful again? Do you want that beast to go away? then there's only one way to do it. Trust the sovereignty of God and do what Nebuchadnezzar eventually did. See, there's a recurring theme in this brilliant chapter. It's why I wanted Sean to read it all. God is determined to teach each one of us he's in control. He is God, not you, not me. I don't know about your experience, but in mine... 
Sometimes God's had to put me on my knees for an extended period to get my attention. I want you to notice something very important here in this passage. Nebuchadnezzar chewed the cud for seven long years. And all until, notice very carefully, verse 34. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven. And my sanity was restored. He started to lift his eyes. See things differently. Less me, mine. More he, his. It's very important we get this. He looked up. He woke up. And then he spoke up. If we want to tame that beast within us, we have to raise our eyes to heaven and get out of the blinking driving seat of our lives. Get down off the throne room of our lives and acknowledge that God is sovereign. You just look there at those final verses and see some wonderful things about our sovereign God. We see there in verse 34 that he rules and reigns eternally. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. He's greater than the greatest. Verse 35, he does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. He defends himself to no one. He doesn't answer to anybody. Verse 35 again, no one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? Yeah, so true. He never makes any mistakes. Verse 37, because everything he does is right and his ways are just. And he deflates those who are puffed up, verse 37. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. It's all there. Friends, understanding God's sovereignty is very important. This is a very, very important doctrine because it's about focusing on him and not on us. This edifice is built to the glory of God. Not so that we get the glory, but that he does. We are a people, Mariah Baptist Church, that exists for the glory of God. Not so that we can be a bunch of do-gooders who think we're better than other people in this community. No, no. We know who we are. Because we keep looking up and seeing him for who he is. Our response should be to fall at his feet. Give him everything we are and everything we own. Pride isn't the sole possession of the powerful, the rich or the famous. Sadly, it controls very many of us. As we wrap up this message this evening, let's see if I can give you just one or two pointers to help you flesh out this important doctrine. I don't think that God is some puppet master in the sky pulling all the strings. His sovereignty means he has given us free will. But we need to submit to his lordship. Totally and irrevocably submitting 
to his lordship in our lives. If we did that as a church, it would change everything. Not Mark Owen's agenda, not the diaconate's agenda, not key people in this church's agenda. No, 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 no. God's agenda. He's in charge. He's the boss. We seek him together and he'll reveal his will to us. Totally and irrevocably. If we did that as a church, if we did that personally, wow. Worship him. Giving him everything that we own. Ask him to take down that monument of pride to our own abilities and talents. Give him your fears. Give him your insecurities. Ask him to take control of your visa card and your checkbook. Tell him that you're willing to do anything and go anywhere as he leads, acknowledging he's in control. Paul in Philippians 2 reminds the Philippian Christians that a time is coming when at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I wonder whether tonight, my friends, we would praise, exalt, and honor him, the King of heaven, our sovereign God, recognizing that everything he does is right and all his ways are just. I really pray we'll be liberated by understanding he's in control. He's the boss. He is the sovereign.